And good Friday morning, a day that sees the world marking a somber one-year anniversary. The start of the war in Ukraine on this day. It is February 24th. This is today. One year of war. Iconic landmarks lit up in the colors of Ukraine overnight. Tens of thousands killed, millions forced to leave their homeland, and 12 months into Russia's invasion, the fighting still rages on with no signs of stopping. Just ahead, Ukraine's president's new push this morning for even more support from the West, and the U.S. announces new sanctions and funding. We'll go one-on-one with the White House National Security Advisor. Round two, the next coast-to-coast winter storm intensifying out west this morning on the heels of the massive system that buried states from California to Maine, creating major travel headaches. Al's got your full forecast. Star witness Alec Murdoch takes the stand in his own defense at his double murder trial, insisting he did not kill his wife and son. I'm sorry to Mags and Papa. I would never intentionally do anything to hurt either one of them. But admitting he lied about where he was minutes before the murders, what cross-examination may bring today, we're live at the courthouse. Cause revealed. This was 100% preventable. The first report on what led to that toxic train derailment in Ohio leading to new outrage from residents. Why investigators say that fiery wreck never had to happen. Those stories plus no license to drive, a head scratching trend all across the country. Why the majority of teenagers are now letting a rite of passage pass them by. And going Hollywood, fresh off her Super Bowl halftime show. Rihanna signs on for another big performance, the high-profile stage she'll be taking next. Today, Friday, February 24th, 2023. From NBC News, this is Today with Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Kotb, live from Studio 1A in Rockefeller Plaza. Hi, everybody. Good morning and welcome to today on a Friday morning. Nice to have you along with us. Tom's in for Hoda this morning and we had a lot to cover. Yeah, it's a busy news morning, uh, including that stunning move by Alex Murdoch taking the stand at his double murder trial. The prosecution continues cross-examining him today, but we have already heard some surprising testimony. We'll break it all down for you in just a bit. Yeah, we'll go to the courthouse in a bit, but we will begin with today's one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Overnight, the Empire State Building lighting up in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. The Eiffel Tower in Paris, also bathed in blue and yellow, along with the famed Sydney Opera House, illuminated in tribute to the people of Ukraine. In a moment, we're going to talk to White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan about the U.S. involvement in the conflict and how long this war could last. But let us begin with NBC's Richard Engel in Ukraine, where a moment of silence was observed this morning, one year later. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Savannah. Everyone in this country remembers exactly where they were at five o'clock in this country a year ago when Russian troops, which had sworn that they were not going to invade Ukraine, Russia claimed it was merely carrying out military exercises. And then Russia entered this country, launched its biggest invasion, the biggest invasion in Europe since World War II. And today, President Zelensky thanked his people for their resolve and predicted that this year Ukraine would win the war. Ukrainians this morning observing a moment of silence for a war they were widely expected to lose, but instead are winning. 
It was 5 a.m. a year ago today when Russia invaded Ukraine in the biggest military campaign in Europe since World War II. At the time, President Putin said Ukraine, an independent nation since the breakup of the Soviet Union 30 years ago, shouldn't exist. This morning, President Zelensky said Ukrainians have proven invincible after a year of pain, sorrow, faith and unity. Millions of Ukrainians are still living as refugees across Europe. A year ago, they began to escape the country, fearing Russian troops would quickly take over. There's a lot of confusion about where these trains are departing from. We've seen people holding their babies up in the air. Throughout it all, the Ukrainian people have showed grit, determination and resolve. The Russians have now arrived at the gates of Kiev. This footbridge is one of the only ways people are able to escape. But the Ukrainian army, backed by American money and weapons, launched a stunning counteroffensive, driving Russian troops back and liberating occupied towns and cities. President Biden congratulated Ukrainians for their bravery after his surprise visit to Kyiv this week. But Vladimir Putin shows no signs of giving up. He's making nuclear threats again and launched a new offensive. Now China is entering the mix, calling for peace. Its foreign ministry overnight releasing a 12-point peace plan. It's mainly a statement of principles about the importance of respecting national sovereignty, avoiding Cold War mentalities, and the need for peace talks. Ukrainian officials say Putin can't be trusted, while the Kremlin continues to insist a sovereign, democratic Ukraine has no right to exist. China said that nuclear weapons should not be used, nor nuclear threats. And today, Savannah, the White House is rolling out more sanctions against Russia. All right, Richard, thank you. And joining us now from Washington, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Hi, Jake. Good morning to you. Good morning, Savannah. As just mentioned, the White House is rolling out new sanctions this morning, as well as additional aid. But let's take a step back and go big picture. It's been one year, $113 billion that the U.S. has sent in military aid and otherwise. There is zero interest uh, apparent from either side of getting to the negotiation table. The president has said we're in it as long as it takes. So level with the American people. How long do you believe we will be involved in this war in Ukraine? Well, Savannah, I can't predict the future when it comes to the war in Ukraine, and no one can. And the reason for that is that the Ukrainians, with their bravery and the backing and support of the United States and our allies, have confounded everyone's expectations. One year ago today, we were all bracing for the fall of Kyiv. One year later, Kyiv stands, Ukraine stands, and America will continue to stand with the people of Ukraine. And in the months ahead, we will continue to supply them with the necessary equipment to continue liberating the occupied portions so, of their country. But I can't tell the American people when the war will end. Of course, and, and no one could. Maybe I should have been more precise because you say in the months ahead, some people talk about years. The issue here is the stalemate where we're trying to walk this fine line. The president has said we don't want to escalate U.S. involvement to the point that we're literally in World War Three. But critics, Republicans and Democrats say, you know, we're giving enough to Ukraine to not lose but not enough to win, to, to get that decisive blow against Russia that would end this conflict. 
Well, as you heard from the correspondent just before we began our interview, uh, Ukraine has actually succeeded in pushing the Russians back and reclaiming half the territory that Russia occupied a few months ago. The blue and, white and yellow flag now flies over areas that Russia was previously holding. So, in fact, American military aid has not just helped Ukraine defend its territory, it's helped them reclaim its territory as well, and we're going to stay on the course for them to continue to do that. You know, it's interesting because there seems in this year to be something of a pattern. The latest issue is fighter jets. Ukraine, Zelensky says we want fighter jets there. But it, it, it seems that sometimes Ukraine asks for something, whether it's tanks or uh, rocket launchers or missiles. And then the U.S. waits a while and then says, OK. So I guess the question is, why not do sooner what you're going to eventually do and, 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 and try to get this uh, decisive blow to happen? Because Zelensky says speed is the issue. Time is not on their side. Actually, the United States has moved with unprecedented speed in uh, shipping weapons of all types and sizes to Ukraine. There has never been as fast and as comprehensive a supply of military assistance in a conflict in history from one country to another. But Savannah, I'm glad you asked that question because what we have done all along is tried to provide Ukraine what it needed for the phase of the war that it was in. The first phase, they needed javelins and stingers to fight tanks and helicopters. The second phase, they needed heavy artillery to push the Russians back. And now, Savannah, what they need are tanks and infantry fighting vehicles to mount a counteroffensive for that territory in the south and the east. Well, he's we have provided for all of that for each of them. Fair enough. But so, he's asking, I mean, presumably they know what they need e even more than the U.S. knows what they need. What happens is that our military experts sit down with their military experts and work out a plan for what we're going to supply them according to the objectives that they've set forth. And that's exactly what they're doing. And when it comes to fighter jets, for right now, what we are focused on is this counteroffensive where tanks and infantry fighting vehicles are the central issue. Uh, fighter jets are a question for another day. Yeah. Let's talk about China. Uh, Secretary Blinken gave a stern warning to China not to send lethal aid to Ukraine. The German newspaper Der Spiegel is reporting this morning that a Chinese company is in fact negotiating with Russia to supply 100 kamikaze strike drones, which could be delivered as soon as April. Is that true? And if China were to proceed with the sale like that, does that mean it is ignoring that warning? Well, I'm not going to speculate on hypotheticals or, or confirm that report. What I will say is that to date, we have not seen China supply lethal aid to Ukraine. And we are continuing to make the case for why that would be a terrible mistake for them. They would, in fact, become a willing participant in Russia's brutal destruction of cities and attacks on civilians. So I can't speculate about what China will do. I can only make the position of the United States and 141 other countries in the world clear that this war should end and Russia should end it by withdrawing from Ukraine. And finally, Putin this week suspended uh, it, the Russia's involvement in the only remaining nuclear treaty between our countries. He talked about refocusing Russia's nuclear triad, announced the deployment of nuclear capable ICBM, saying that it would make those who threaten Russia think twice. It's loose talk about nuclear weapons. The president has said he does not believe that Putin intends to use them, that he doesn't see the evidence there. What makes you so sure? And are you concerned about this escalation of talk? 
Well, first, any loose talk of nuclear weapons is dangerous and irresponsible. But Savannah, we can only focus on what we see. And we have seen no change in Russia's nuclear posture. And therefore, we have made no change in our own nuclear posture. We will remain vigilant. But for the moment, we have seen nothing to indicate of movement towards any deployment or use of nuclear weapons. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on a big day. It's nice to have your time and perspective. Thank you. Thank you. All right, back here at home, we want to take a turn out of the dangerous weather stretching from coast to coast. That massive winter storm we've tracked all week has finally moved off the coast of New England, but the next cross-country system is now taking aim out west. Take a look at that. All of it creating major travel headaches. We'll get to Al's forecast in just a moment, but first, NBC's Tom Costello joins us from Reagan National Airport. Tom, good morning. Yeah, there's always a travel impact. At this moment, we've got 785 flight delays nationwide, about 200 or so cancellations. The numbers are pretty impressive here. On the West Coast, Portland, looking at a total of 11 inches of snow. That's the second most since World War II. Minneapolis, 13 inches at the airport alone. We are seeing, in fact, these storms targeting and putting the West Coast and the upper Midwest right there in the bullseye. On this Friday morning, a dangerous combination. Snow, ice, and gusting winds are impacting millions from the West Coast all the way to New England. The major blast of winter weather bringing parts of the country to a virtual standstill. Our flight got canceled because of the snow, I'm guessing. More than 1,000 flights canceled, 7,000 more delayed on Thursday. Keeping my fingers crossed. Airports in Portland and Minneapolis slammed. Both areas digging out from major snowstorms that also made for treacherous driving conditions. Roads slick with ice and snow, causing crashes and closing highways. In Portland, roads clogged with cars, not going anywhere fast. Police there say they had almost no warning to prepare for the traffic nightmare, with forecasters underselling the storm. If I didn't have to work today, it'd be fine. And if my car had heat, it would be fine. But here we are. In the Midwest, the storm knocking out power to hundreds of thousands of customers. The Northeast, from upstate New York to Boston, also experiencing its share of frigid temps and snow. And out west after blanketing Portland with its second snowiest day on record, Southern California bracing for its first blizzard in almost 30 years in the mountains outside of L.A. As this rare sight took residents by surprise, a wintry mix falling over that famed Hollywood sign. It's really a strange world we're living in because we haven't had enough snow here in Washington to even shovel at all this season. No shoveling at all. And yesterday it was 80 degrees in Washington, D.C. And yet we're talking snow in L.A. Go figure. Guys, Tom, back 80 again. degrees. Tom Costello was by the pool there in D.C. in February. Oh all right, Tom, thank you for that. I know. He says no shovel. You're back. Thanks you, Tom. But still, Al, it's wild. It's I just know. everything's topsy-turvy. Yesterday, yesterday, Nashville got to 85, all-time warmest February temperature for Tennessee. Uh, but yet we look out here, 27 million people out west under winter weather advisory, storm watches, warnings, flood watches as well for the heavy rain that's going to be coming. And you can see on the radar satellite combo, look at this snow from Medford down to Eureka, and we've got snow just outside of San Francisco and in the mountains just north of Los Angeles. Epic storm bringing rain, wind, snow to the West Coast. The snow levels will drop as this cold air comes in and is wrapped around from this low out of Canada. Tomorrow, the heavy rain will continue down south into San Diego, a chilly day with snow in the mountains throughout much of the region. We've also got 30 million people under wind advisories, wind warnings. The advisory areas gust of up to 50 miles per hour. The warning 
mornings, 65 mile per hour wind gusts. That's where trees, trees come down, power outages, heavy rain from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles. Some places in the transverse ranges, those are those ranges that run from east to west as opposed to more north to south. That could be seven to inches of rain or more. And then as far as the snow is concerned, we're talking the mountains up in the Sierra, three to six feet likely, some places even more. The mountains north and west of Los Angeles, two to five feet locally. Some places could see upwards of eight feet of snow, guys. All right, Al, thanks for that. Uh, We want to take a turn now to the new developments and the new outrage tied to that toxic train wreck in Ohio. NTSB investigators have now released their initial findings saying the derailment was 100% preventable. NBC's Jesse Kirsch is in East Palestine for us. Jesse, good morning. Tom, good morning. We now know the train's emergency brake system kicked in after the NTSB says a critical alarm went off. Investigators say the crew was following procedure, but now there are questions as to whether that procedure needs to change. This morning, federal investigators zeroing in on the cause of that toxic train derailment. On Thursday, the National Transportation Safety Board releasing its preliminary report. Investigators say this surveillance video appears to show a wheel bearing on the train approach what they call an overheat failure moments before the derailment. This was 100% preventable. We call things accidents. There is no accident. NTSB says a suspect wheel bearings temperature was tracked by three sensors across roughly 30 miles in this area. The first reading, 38 degrees above the air temperature. Then it was up 103 degrees. Finally, 253 degrees hotter than the air temperature. They were following procedures. Once they got the critical alarm of 253, they took immediate action. According to investigators, the engineer slowing the train before an automatic emergency brake brought it to a stop. But before that critical alarm, the NTSB says Norfolk Southern's crew was not alerted to the first two temperature checks. In a statement, Norfolk Southern says its temperature detectors trigger an alarm at a temperature threshold that is among the lowest in the rail industry. Meanwhile, residents like Michelle Graff are joining class action lawsuits. She's worried about her bed and breakfast's business. It's kind of like if a bully punches you, you got to push them back. The report coming as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has been criticized for not visiting sooner. He toured the derailment site Thursday, pushing for tighter train safety rules. Uh, I think we need to uh, raise the bar on what's expected and on what's required. How much does a promise for tomorrow help? Well, it, it doesn't. I mean, this is here. It's happened. We have to deal with it. The NTSB chair says the railroad sets its own temperature threshold for those alerts with investigators now looking into if that threshold should be different. Meanwhile, the NTSB plans to hold what it calls a rare investigative field hearing that's planned for this spring. Tom. All right, Jesse Kirsch with a lot of new reporting this morning. Jesse, thank you. All right, 19 minutes after the hour. I want to check in with Al once again, get the rest of that forecast. Hey, guys, so that storm system that affected the northeast, that's moving off, but winds are left behind it. Record warmth down through the southeast on into Florida. Frigid conditions in the plains. Record cold in the northwestern plains and on into the Pacific Northwest. And that big storm really gets ramped up along the west coast. And that's your latest weather, guys. All right, Al, thank you very much. And just ahead, Alec Murdoch, now the 
star witness at his own murder trial, denying he killed his wife and son, but having to answer for lies he told police about his alibi during the investigation. He's back on the stand today facing cross-examination. We're going to go live to the courthouse. Plus, we'll take a closer look at a growing trend all across America, why far fewer teenagers these days are getting driver's license and what that means for the rest of us out on the roads. But first, could be good news, right? This is today <laughs> on NBC. I was thinking that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it occurred. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash today just go to indeed.com slash today right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast indeed.com slash today conditions apply need to hire you need indeed we are back 7 30 we all remember rihanna's super bowl halftime show and Jacob, as you join us, we uh, can reveal that the next big performance has been scheduled. I was at the last one. The next one is going to be <laughs> even bigger, you guys. Good morning to you. Uh, Riri is going to follow up her soaring medley at the Super Bowl by singing at this year's Oscars. Wow. It is going to be crazy. She's going to be performing Lift Me Up from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. It's nominated for Best Original Song, her first ever Oscar nomination. Even watching at home, though, was so yeah. good to oh, see her at the Super Bowl, right? Yeah, she's staying busy. She's having yeah, a moment. Riri's having a moment. With oh, a little baby coming, too. I know. Exciting. And nominated. Yeah. All right, we're going to start this half hour with the trial of former South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch. Yeah, he's returning to the stand today after making the rare and risky decision to testify in his own defense. NBC's Katie Beck joins us from the courthouse with the very latest. Katie, good morning. Well, good morning, guys. Right out of the gate, Alec Murdoch admitting that he lied to investigators, but maintaining that he never killed his wife and son. The defense painting Murdoch as a family man who was struggling with a serious addiction. Prosecutors painting him as a con man who used his standing in the community to lie, cheat, steal, and murder. I am going to testify. After weeks of witness testimony about him, the jury finally hearing directly from Alec Murdoch in his own words. I did lie to them. Under oath, Murdoch admitting he misled investigators about being at the crime scene just minutes before his wife Maggie and son Paul were brutally murdered. Murdoch blaming an opioid addiction, which he says made him paranoid and distrust in state authorities. Once I lied, I continued to lie. But through hours of tearful testimony, often referring to his son by the nickname Paul Paul, he maintained he had nothing to do with the murders. I did not kill Maggie. I did not kill Paul. I would never hurt Maggie. And I would never hurt Paul. Ever. Under any circumstances. Murdoch also admitting that during the investigation into the murders and into his alleged financial crimes, he tried to hire his cousin in a botched hit job to cash in on $12 million in life insurance. What was the end goal in your, that you wanted to accomplish? I meant for him to shoot me so I'd be gone. 
On cross-examination, the state quickly targeting his earlier admission on the witness stand of being at the kennels the night of the murders. All this time later, this is the first time you've ever said that. Yes, sir. Prosecutors trying to establish Murdoch as a member of an elite family who used his standing in the community, including carrying a badge with him, to get favorable treatment from law enforcement. They also accused him of stealing millions of dollars from former clients to fuel a wealthy lifestyle. I stole money that was not my money. I misled people that I shouldn't have misled. And I did wrong. How many times have you practiced that answer before your testimony today? Prosecutors who've said Murdoch's motive for murder was an attempt to cover up those financial crimes, appearing to be frustrated by his repeatedly vague responses. You can't tell us one conversation you have with any of these people when you look them in the eye and convince them that you are doing them right, that you are telling the truth. That's not true, Mr. Waters. When trial resumes, Murdoch will be back on the stand for cross-examination. We expect that could take several more hours today. The defense say they have two or three more witnesses before they rest their case. Savannah. All right, Katie, back at the courthouse. Thank you. Let's bring in NBC's senior legal correspondent, Laura Jarrett. Laura, good morning. Hey, good morning. It's always a wow. I mean, when the yeah. defendant takes the witness stand, it's extremely risky. It, it kind of converts the case to a one witness case. Do they believe him or they don't believe him? Right. How did he do? Was this a, is this paying off? For days, you and I have talked about what an enormous gamble this would be. And I think so far, and I want to qualify it as so far, he has been quite compelling. He was emotional when he was talking about the murders. And he also managed to clear up a lot of the weird inconsistencies that the jury has heard so much about. He was able to tackle it. Because what is the first rule as a defense attorney? If your client's going to insist upon testifying, as we, by all counts, think that he did, you get out the bad facts (laughs) on direct examination so that the cross examination sort of loses some of its impact. And you, th- I see, I think that's what the strategy I mean, they was. They did it here. almost right away to yeah. get ahead of those bad facts. The worst fact for him, of course, is that as he has now acknowledged, he was lying to police, to his family, to investigators, to his own lawyers about whether or not he was at the scene of the crime moments before the murder. What did you think of his explanation for why he lied? The idea that he was paranoid and that it had to do with his drug use, um, I think that's a that's going to be an interesting credibility determination for this jury to make. But I think he had to admit at least to the lie, because if he had tried to uh, obfuscate or tried to just try to shred the truth on that a little bit, I think there were too many witnesses who had placed him at the scene of the crime. He couldn't get around it. He had to admit it. I think blaming it on the drugs, again, That's we'll see whether that works. But, you know, this jury, as all of us probably have some in our life who has suffered from substance abuse, it may not be a knock against him. The jury may find that sympathetic. The jury may be actually uh, find that completely credible. Yeah, well, let's talk about the jury because, you know, if, if nothing else, for someone to come and tell their story in their own words, being questioned by their own lawyer, it's humanizing. Yeah. And here he is talking about Papa and Mags and the family. There's word that some of the jurors seemed openly moved by this, one even in tears. Yeah, it's hard because at home, you know, certainly on social media, some people might have found it was too folksy, too scripted. At least based on what we know from the pool reports in the courtroom, jurors were wiping away tears. They passed him a tissue. Now, maybe it's just Southern hospitality to pass someone a tissue. But if they're moved so much for tears, that's not a good sign for the prosecution. And it's a sign that they may find him sympathetic. The prosecutors have just started their cross-examination. 
nomination. I mean, this is it for them. So how do you think it's going so far? What do they need to do today? They need to get to the point. They allowed the jury to go home yesterday after two hours of cross-examination. Not a peep about the murders. That's a head-scratcher, I think. Now, maybe the prosecutors are building up to some amazing Perry Mason moment, but they need to get to it because, again, by reports in the courtroom, some people are a little bit sleepy. You can't be sleepy at a murder trial under cross-examination. That's a big problem. This is the moment. All right, Laura Jarrett, thank you so much. Straight ahead, we are going to talk spring break. We're going to get you ready. Where to go, when to book, ways to save, everything you need to know. But first, it was a rite of passage for most of us getting the driver's license. Well, guess what? A majority of teenagers now say, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to take a closer look right after this. He would lie his way into their dreams. He was looking for James Bond girls. How fun would that be to be a Bond girl? Then twist them into a nightmare. This guy's done this before. He'll do it again. Until a group of women banded together to put him behind bars and keep him there. You have to participate fiercely, fiercely in what happens next. I'm Keith Morrison, and this is Murder in the Hollywood Hills, an all-new podcast from Dateline. All episodes of Murder in the Hollywood Hills are available now. To listen ad-free, subscribe to Dateline Premium on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or DatelinePremium.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Jenna Bush Hager from Today with Hoda and Jenna and the Read with Jenna Book Club. There's nothing I love more than sharing my favorite reads with all of you, except maybe talking to the exceptional authors behind these stories. And that's what I'll be doing on my podcast, Read with Jenna. I'll be introducing you to some of my favorite writers. These conversations will leave you feeling inspired and entertained. To start listening, just search Read with Jenna wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia Rodrigo is excited about driver's licenses, but, you know, most people her age, apparently not. Not that psyched about it. (laughs) This is so shocking. Surveys now show the majority of teenagers who are eligible to get their license these days actually don't. Back, you know, when we were teenagers, it was a symbol of freedom. It was a symbol of independence. But, oh, how times have changed. There's ride-sharing services, the rise of social media. Gen Z simply is not as interested in getting behind the wheel as we used to be. Watch out for the bike whip! Oops, my bad. Remember when getting your license was the most exciting part about being a teen? Are you going to take me somewhere to make left-hand turns? We're going back to the DMV. But these days, it seems teens and 20-somethings aren't in any rush to get into the driver's seat. Federal data shows only a quarter of 16-year-olds have their driver's licenses, about half as many as in the mid-90s. Stats true today for 16-year-old boys as well as girls. Experts say this trend is due in part to the popularity of ride-sharing apps and e-scooters, as well as social media replacing in-person get-togethers. According to one survey, 61% of teens between 13 and 17 prefer texting or using social media over actually talking in person. Since COVID, many Gen Zers like New Yorker Aliyah Tejeda are working from home, making getting a license less necessary. She says even signing up for driver's ed would break her bank. It's like $500 just for like three lessons. And that's part of the problem. It's too expensive, right? It's way too expensive. Even if I were able to afford a car note on top of my rent, do I have money for insurance? Absolutely not. Nationwide driving schools report teens are foregoing licenses, not just in cities where public transport's easier, but in less populated areas too. 23-year-old Madison Morgan grew up in rural Washington state and still doesn't have a license. 
driving is honestly just very anxiety inducing. Um, when I would practice with my parents, a lot of times it would end in tears. Now working in Seattle, she takes the bus to work, but says her parents still beg her to learn how to drive so she can have more options career-wise. They want me to get a license so that if I ever wanted to move, I wouldn't be as limited. But why would I want to have my own car when I can just like go on an app and someone else in their car can just drive me around? You're a virgin who can't drive. Oh, that was way harsh, Ty. Let's face it, what used to be the ultimate put-down now worn as a badge of honor among young people. No license, no problem. Owning a car just isn't a part of our reality. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, did you uh, get you get your driver's license right away? The day I turned 16, I got my learner's permit. Immediately. Boom. Right so did I. Yes. Yeah, no, I did. We, I didn't have a car, so I was like, why right. bother? Plus, I was always the youngest, so I had friends who had cars, oh, so sure. I waited. It's not just uh, uh, Gen Z. It's millennials, too. Like, 8% less millennials are yeah. getting their driver's licenses right now. One thing that I don't like to do, ride those scooters. So scary, so yeah. dangerous. Oh, oh. I would driver's oh, no. license over scooter any no, day of the week. No, no, no. Leela, my, my 24-year-old, doesn't have a license. No. Oh, really? Still? Still? I don't blame her. Uh, well, she's a city girl. That's what I'm Yeah, it makes sense true. there, but like where we all grew up, you, you needed a she's car. She's got the Uber app, though. That's true. Yeah. That's First that. car? First car, Isuzu Rodeo. It was stick shift. My dad taught me how to wow. drive no on way. Sundays. We would stall out every Sunday on the way to Mass, uh, and he would scream at me the entire <laughs> drive. So I'm not going to ask you for a ride home. No. Yeah. Can you drive a stick shift? Absolutely not. No, I can. I, can. I know you. I love the stick shift. I love the stick shift. Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. Oh, we got to get a lesson. <laughs> right, okay. We're going to shift right. over to the weather map now. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Learn how to drive on a hill. That's never fun. Anyway, look at these bitter cold temperatures right now. We're looking at wind chills advisory, wind chill warnings. Uh, 10 million people from Portland all the way to Duluth down to North Platte. It is brutally cold right now. It feels like 22 below in Bismarck, 15 in Salt Lake, 12 in Portland, minus 23 in Minneapolis. But there's a big rebound. Look at this. Bismarck Friday today, minus one by Sunday. You're at 30. Denver, 37 on today, uh, 53 on Sunday. Chicago today, you're at 28. You'll be at 50 by Sunday. So that is good news. And again, the cherry blossoms, tidal basin, the the Cherry trees are starting to bud already. This is about uh, two to three weeks early. It buds to bloom about three to five weeks early. Earliest bloom, March 15th, 1990. The average bloom, April 4th. And we're starting to see those leaves already. First leaves now in New York, Ohio, and Indiana. This earliest on record for the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic as well. So for all you gardeners, get ready. It's coming, baby. And New York, our first leaf here in New York City. 32 days early. This is crazy stuff going on. And we still only have four tenths of an inch of snow. And that's your latest weather, guys. All right. Just ahead, big news for a wildly popular HBO show and a beloved movie franchise. One's coming back, the other's coming to an end. That and more coming up on Popstart. Yeah, plus we're rounding up the best tips and deals ahead of what's expected to be one of the busiest spring break seasons in years. 